Whatever form you've brought God's Word uh, in today, turn to Mark chapter 9, and before you're tempted to cut your hand off, you really need to listen to this teaching first about a thing called hyperbole. Because this is one of those passages that when we arrive at it, we start to see some context building up to it, but if you were to grab this con without any context and just look at this passage alone, you might scratch your head and think, what in the world are you talking about, Jesus? So we're going to look at that. We're going to look at several reasons why you're not supposed to take this hyperbolic, hyperbolic, hyperbolic. In Canada, it's probably hyperbolic. There's a controversy about that. But we're not supposed to take this hyperbolic teaching literally and yet we are supposed to take it seriously. So we're going to look at some reasons why we're not supposed to take it literally, and then we're going to see at why it's still a very serious teaching. So Mark chapter 9, 42 through 50. In this passage, Jesus talks about a hand, a foot, an eye, and he says if they offend you or if they cause you to stumble or sin, you're supposed to get rid of those body parts. And we go, whoa, okay. So, let's look at that. Hyperbole. Jesus' teaching in this passage is a good example of hyperbole. Hyperbole is an obvious exaggeration from two words. Hyper, those of us who are hyper understand that that means beyond. Can I get an amen? Okay, that's a little over the top. It's a little beyond. And boli, to throw or to cast. So, it means to throw or cast beyond for the purpose of exaggerating and making a point so that it'll stick and we can think about it and chew on it for a long time, which Jesus does really well in his teaching. So as Christ followers, I would hope that we want to learn to think biblically and critically as we interpret correctly God's word, and that's why we're going to study this difficult but meaningful passage. Let me read through that, 42 through 50. We're not going to really deal with the last two verses. I'll probably pick up on some of that maybe next week because that's a whole message even in itself. But to get this in context, let's read 42 through 50. But, Jesus says as he's teaching, if you cause one of these little ones who trusts in me to fall into sin, it would be better for you to be thrown into the sea with a large millstone hung around your neck. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better to enter eternal life with only one hand than to go into the unquenchable fires of hell with two hands. If your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better to enter eternal life with only one foot than to be thrown into hell with two feet. And if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. It's better to enter the kingdom of God with only one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell, where the maggots never die and the fire never goes out. For everyone will be tested by fire. Salt is good for seasoning, but if it loses its flavor, how do you make it salty again? You must have the qualities of salt among yourselves and live at peace with each other. Let's pray for God to illuminate this for us. God, we're asking for your Holy Spirit to take what could be difficult words and transform them through understanding and truth into something that becomes meaningful and applicable to each one of us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
So reason number one why we should not take this passage literally. And unfortunately, I'm afraid that there have been cults and small followings of people, not only just in other countries, but we heard of one small cult popping up in a local prison in Lenawee County when they were trying to take this passage literally, and they were literally encouraging one another to take off an offending body part. Incredible. Don't do that. Jesus often used exaggeration. That's one reason why we should not take this one literally. He often used exaggeration. This is one of his teaching methods, one of his teaching tools. He would give out these extreme statements to grab his listeners. That certainly grabbed mine when I read that. Cut off my arm? What? But it's also to get his point across. For example, Luke 14, 26, when he says, if you're going to follow me, you've got to hate your father and your mother. What did he mean by that? Well, he meant that in comparison to our love for God, if our family does not support our following God, we have to forsake family and put God first. So in comparison, it would be like you're hating your mother and father. Fortunately, many of us don't have to do that. We can love and honor our mothers and fathers, and we're very, very blessed to live in a country where we don't have to be ostracized or cut off from our family in most cases by accepting Christ as Savior and leaving some other culture. But he means that in comparison, it would be as if you hate your father and mother. Another one's very difficult, sounds strange. He's not teaching us to be cannibals when he says in John 6, 56, eat my flesh and drink my blood. In fact, if you read just a few verses beyond that statement, he says, my words are spirit or spiritual, which means that he's speaking as a spiritual metaphor that as we are taking communion, as we're bringing him into our lives, it is as though we are literally ingesting him because he is life. He's the bread of life. He's using lots of analogies like that. Reason number two why we should not take this hyperbolic teaching literally. Literal does not always mean correct when it comes to interpretation. A key Bible interpretation principle is not take everything literally. It is take everything as intended. That means what did the author intend for it to mean to his or her audience in that culture at that time? That's a good place to start. There's a whole branch of study called hermeneutics. Hermeneutics. It's something that's talking about the principles we can apply, scholarly principles to help us interpret more specifically and correctly. And there's never anything in hermeneutics that says, take everything literally. It doesn't show up there. It says, take whatever is there and know what it means as it was intended. For example, we do this with other authors. We do it in lots of different secular authors as well, and we should. I found this one little example, which I thought was really cute. Um, it's by a person named Judith Ortiz Kofer, and she was writing a poem that reflects some of the cultural expectations put upon Latino girls, especially when they turn 15, because it's a poem called Quinceañera. I'm butchering the pronunciation, but hopefully it's close enough that you understand what that is. This big party that they throw for 15-year-old girls. And so this is the poem, and she starts the poem like this. My hair has been nailed back with my mother's black hairpins to my skull. Now, is that literal? I hope not. I don't think that her mother grabbed a hammer and took some long hairpins and literally hammered the hair into the girl's skull. It's 
a metaphor. It's supposed to be exaggerated for the purpose of feeling like, I, that's how I feel when she's trying to braid my hair. She pulls my hair so tight and pins it so tightly that it feels like she's just putting it to my skull. Well, that's a hyperbole. We get that. If we're going to do that in secular literature, secular writings, we definitely ought to learn when is the right place to do that when God is the author as well. And not only is God the author here, but it's actually God speaking because it's God the Son, Jesus Christ, who's actually saying these words which are hyperbolic, the one about getting rid of offending body parts. Uh, we don't use literalistic interpretation in many other areas of Scripture, too. We should know that. And if we did, it could force us to come up with some pretty bizarre things. For example, 2 Chronicles 16.9. Imagine what comes into your mind when I read this. For the eyes of the Lord roam throughout the earth so that he may strongly support those whose hearts are completely his. It sounds a little bit like some sort of a weird anime or cartoon, and you get all these eyeballs that are scurrying around. Or my daughter who'd said, no, it makes me feel like, is it Sauron, that great big thing, that's the eyeball that's looking around? And so, no, it's, it's a metaphor. It's supposed to be exaggerated for the purpose of saying that, yes, God looks everywhere to find those people who fully support him so that he can bless them and give them encouragement. In fact, the contemporary English version says this way, the Lord is constantly watching everyone. So that kind of gets at the heart of that. This is another reason why I think it's a good interpretive principle for those of us who are not really steeped in Greek and Hebrew and Aramaic to just read several different translations if we're stuck in a passage because sometimes there'll be a nuance that will show up in one translation since some of these words don't translate very specifically into English. And by three or four of those, you start to pick up, okay, I think I see where the author is going with that. I'm picking up the meaning, the intent there. So if we're using the interpretive principle, take the Bible as intended, then if the reading is literal and it makes the most sense to read it literally, we should, in fact, take it literally. We shouldn't always try to impress or press our own symbolism onto things. There were some early church fathers that tried to do that with certain passages, and they came up with some bizarre interpretations of things. And we don't want to do that either. A good example of something that was intended to be taken literally is in James when he's saying, when you give to the needy, or no, I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself, uh, never mind. Here's something else that we just backed that one right up. Here's something that Jesus says, uh, and he's talking about motive here, and it's one of those things that we have to take in context to find out what did the author intend rather than taking it uh, literally. When you give to the needy, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. You know, I'm going to do this. No, don't look. Don't, don't, don't look. You have to try to interpret from looking at the context what he's talking about. He's actually talking about the motive of giving. Sometimes people would want to give publicly, and so they would want to hold it up in front of people and say, hey, look at me, I'm giving more than the other person, not da-da-da. And that's for men's praise. Other people might want to say, no, I'm going to give kind of secretively because I just want to help, but I don't want to call attention to myself. And he says, in a sense, that's like one hand not knowing what the other hand is doing. Now, there's not a real corresponding figure of speech in English that we can grab a hold of and say, it's like that. So we have to just interpret based on the context and say, in all the rest of the stuff that he's been talking about, he's talking about motive. 
what is our motive for giving? Is it so that we can look better and build ourselves up? Or is it so that we can actually bless others and we do so secretively without caring if we get the credit or not? So, example here, this is the one I started to jump ahead to, is something that supposed to be taken literally, and yet we try to make it symbolic. When James says, if somebody needs food, if they don't have enough clothing, then give them some more clothing and give them some food if you have some to share. Don't just say, I'll pray for you, brother, and be on your way. Now, that sounds pretty literal to me. And if people try to symbolize that or impose some sort of a, a spiritual meaning to that, we're missing the point. That one is just really blatant. Just give them some food. Give them some extra clothes. Reason number three why we should not take this hyperbolic teaching about lopping off body parts literally. There's no additional evidence in the New Testament where this practice was being done back then. You'd kind of expect that maybe we would see that somewhere. It would be referenced somewhere, maybe in the book of Acts, as the church was growing a great deal. And they would say, and as per your habit, those of you who are lopping off your hands, it, there's nothing ever mentioned about that. So there's no corroboration that this was, in fact, a thing in the New Testament. Now, some might be tempted to go to the Jewish Old Testament practice of circumcision, which God gave to the Hebrews, for the purpose of having them set apart as a unique people. But that wasn't forced upon the New Testament believers, especially Gentile believers. In fact, they met together in the book of Acts. It's recorded where they had this council. They met and they said, no, we're not going to impose that. They don't have to do everything just like the Jews do it in order to become believers because Jesus fulfilled the Old Testament law, and therefore it's grace that they're saved by. So they don't have to do that. So if you're tempted to use circumcision as an example of that, just don't that one doesn't fit. Reason number four, why we should not take this hyperbolic teaching literally, it doesn't actually stop us from sinning. Hmm. Cutting off a limb that is used by you to commit a sin doesn't deal with the inner motive, which is what Jesus talked about a lot, <laughs> constantly talking about motive. It doesn't stop that motive and a pastor named Mike Winger came up with a kind of a humorous illustration to show why this is true. Let's say that you are a hot-headed, pugilistic, quarrelsome person. And you're always picking fights. And that you have hurt a lot of people because you tend to want to just punch them in the face. And everywhere you're walking around, you're getting into fights and you're punching them in the face. And you finally get tired of punching them in the face until you, I'm going to cut my right hand off. And you whack your hand off. And let's say that a doctor says, you know, you can't pick things up. Let me give you a nice hook. <laughs> what does that do? It makes you a more dangerous pugilist. You're a more dangerous, quarrelsome, hot-headed person because now you can really do some damage with that hook. So it doesn't really, cutting off the limb doesn't really solve the problem because the problem is the motive. Also, think about this logic. If you cut off your right hand, What's to keep you from punching that guy with the left hand? Or if you gouge out your right eye, what's to keep you from sinning with your left eye? So that's another reason why we can start to see that this is clearly there for exaggerated purposes so that we'll really have to chew on this and think about it carefully. And think about Paul's words when he says, all of us have sinned and fallen short. That means that if every believer took this passage in Mark seriously and literally, we would all be a bunch of blind, limbless believers. 
That wouldn't accomplish a lot, would it? So, we have seen why we shouldn't take this passage literally, but now let's look at why we should take it seriously and interpret it well, knowing that it is hyperbole. Paul gives us a couple of good clues. He actually does this. He interprets some of the stuff that he heard from Jesus, and he's putting it out to us in a way that helps us understand what we need to be doing with exaggerated statements like that. He says, Colossians 3, 5, Therefore, and this is in the New American Standard Bible, Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. It's a big word in there, isn't it? Consider. That means as if. Consider it as if these things are dead to you. So he's not saying make the members of your earthly body dead to immorality, impurity, passions, evil, etc. Now the only reason that I would give you pastoral permission to actually cut off a limb is if it's got gangrene. My daughter gave me that this morning as I was talking through this passage. She said, if you've got gangrene, it's okay. But don't do it yourself. Go to a professional. Let them do it in a sterile environment. Uh, you can get somebody who knows about how to sew veins back together and that kind of stuff. But in any other case, he's saying treat it as though they are dead to you. That's another example of why we can see that when things are worded that are closer to the actual transliteration, like put to death these things in you, it means treat them as though they are dead to you. This helps us see what Jesus means when he's using this exaggeration. Here's another passage from Paul that helps us get it. Romans 8:13. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. Ah, there's that word spirit again. Just like when Jesus said, eat my flesh, drink my blood, he said, and my words are spirit here that is again, he's, I'm speaking spiritually, if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of your body, you will live. Meaning that the power of the Holy Spirit is at work in us so that our motives become pure and we do the right things. It's all about motive. So this is talking about that abiding life where people are walking in the Spirit, so to speak, so that the Spirit is allowed to help guide us and change our motives to do the right things. Well, we all know, and I've preached this a lot, that fire is good when it's within the boundaries that we've established for it. If it's in a fireplace, which I wish we had had during the ice storm, but we didn't, it would have been nice. We did have a couple of wooden Ikea chairs that were almost burned for the sake of, but Joy stopped me just in time. She said, no, don't take this literally. You're just saying that if we had to, we could, okay. So fire's good in the fireplace, or it's good if we put a bunch of boulders around it and we make a fire pit out when we're camping. It's good if it's staying within the boundaries, right? But what happens when the fire gets outside those boundaries? It can create destruction, and it can hurt people. It can burn you. If we play with the things that are outside God's boundaries, we get burned. I learned this very literally, but it also became an example of this uh, metaphor that we're looking at when I was in Boy Scouts. I didn't make it very far. I made it to like Tenderfoot. <laughs> so I, I didn't uh, really do well with a lot of the outdoorsy stuff that some of those guys did. And we were in a camp out one time in northern Arizona, and we all had to learn how to make fire pits, and we were cooking our food, and it got really cold, and we didn't have warm enough sleeping bags because we were from Phoenix in the desert, and we didn't know that it gets cold up in the mountains. And then we're shivering to death, and somebody in the early morning hours says, Get up, there's a fire. 
And they said, grab a blanket or your shirt and let's beat that fire down before it spreads to that grove of trees over there. And it was a grass fire and it was moving pretty quickly. But with about 150, 100, 150 Boy Scouts all beating down that grass and putting the fire out, fortunately, we were able to stave it off and we kept it from turning into what could have been a really bad forest fire in northern Arizona. But one kid walked back toward camp and he saw this beautiful medallion that somebody had won as a medal for doing something, kind of like a merit badge, but even bigger. And he thought, ooh, that's a really neat thing. I bet somebody's missing that. I better take it back to camp and find out whose it is. And he went, and you know, like on Indiana Jones, where that guy reaches up and mm, he had the shape of that medallion burned right into his palm. It was awful. Which means that this is a metaphor for what Jesus is saying. If we play with fire, we can get burned, but also people around us, even innocent people, can get burned. They can get hurt because we sin. And how many times have we heard it from people that said, well, I'm only hurting myself. Ah! <laughs> Jesus in this teaching is saying, don't treat sin lightly. And if you say you're only hurting yourself, you're lying to yourself. Everybody gets hurt, especially those close to us, when we step outside God's boundaries. If we play with fire, we're going to get burned. So what did the meaning to the uh, audience of Jesus, what did they think about in the meanings related to things like feet, hands, and eyes? Well, let's look at that real briefly. I think it's important because it helps us know what was intended by what Jesus said. The feet basically take us into good places or bad places. They take us where we want to go. And in one of the things in Proverb 115, because I'm only choosing one proverb, I'm doing it singularly. I had, a prof I had a professor that used to take us to task for saying Proverbs 115. He goes, no, that's only one. Now, if you happen to say Proverbs, we won't dock you any living water points, but this is a single proverb. It says, don't go along with those who, in, in the previous verses, those who are plotting evil and carrying out schemes against other people. Don't set foot upon their path. In other words, don't go down the path of becoming a schemer to hurt other people because what they leave is a wake of destruction. It's not like a little crime of opportunity when you're walking along and you see that there's an orange hanging down from this orange tree, but it's over in your neighbor's yard, but you can reach it. And so you go, oh, I'm going to take that orange. No, that's a little petty thief, uh, a little petty thief there. He's talking about don't hang out with these people that literally are making their living at the expense of innocent victims out there. Don't go down that path. But in contrast to that, they would think as the foot going down the right path, like Isaiah 30, 21, when he says, if you'll repent from all these things, he's talking to Israel, then you'll learn to hear God's voice. And as you're going down the path, you'll hear the voice from behind you saying, here's the way, walk in it. it means walk in God's ways, walk into his boundaries, walk into the ways that are going to lead you to life and blessing instead of down this other path, which leads to destruction and hurt for you and all those around you. So, the foot that Jesus is talking about, that he would say, if it offends you, cut it off. He means separate yourself from it that would be right along, right along in keeping with some of these Old Testament passages. Get off of this path, get onto the right path. How about hands? Well, they can be, uh, as we mentioned in that one illustration, they can punch people in the face. They can be used to harm people, as we would see in Psalm 31, the singular Psalm, 3115, deliver me from the hand of my enemies. 
there is a single hand again because it represents those enemies who can use their hands for destruction. They'll throw a spear, they'll shoot an arrow, they'll have an axe, whatever they're using. That means that they can be used to maim and destroy. That's one use of the hand. The other is a good use in Deuteronomy 28:12, where he says, I'm going to bless the work of your hands. That means you're being productive. You're living in my ways, and therefore I'm going to bless you so that the work you're doing is productive and useful and it's going to bring forth lots of good fruit. How about the eyes? Well, the first thing we tend to go through when we think, don't look at those things that will burn us, most people think of lust. And that's true. But this has an even broader meaning in the Old Testament than that. 1 John 2.16 actually looks at both of those meanings. He says the first one is the lust of the eyes, which means just good old-fashioned, basic, all-American lust. Or a lust for everything else that we see, which means that it's a desire for something that becomes an obsession. So if I see something and I become obsessed with that, and I think, man, i got to have one of those. Or I want my neighbor's wife, or I want my neighbor's car. And you can get around that by saying, I wish that I had his car and he had a better one. But that doesn't solve the problem either, because then we want that one. And so if it's something that becomes obsessed, everything that we're looking at that becomes an obsession, thinking it's going to satisfy us, it won't. And he says, so that's one of the things that the eyes can look at. But if we're saturating our minds by looking at things that are going to be helpful for us, like the Word, for example, then that's going to help us develop the motive to live as citizens of the kingdom. And that's where I think it's good for us to remember that the Spirit is the one who reveals truth to us. John 16, 8, we can see that. I could probably come up with a list of examples, and a lot of preachers do that. They'll just have their checklist. I'm going to go through this whole checklist of sins, and if you've done one of these, you need to repent from that today. Come forward. The buses will wait if you came on a bus. They would do that sort of thing, hoping that they're going to touch on you with one of those sins. And some of the teaching, like this one from Jesus, is broad enough and long-lasting enough that he's basically calling on people to listen to the voice of the Spirit and say, if the Spirit is revealing something to you right now that you know you're going to have to separate yourself from, even if it's not on my list that I'm putting forward to you, you need to listen to the Spirit. You need to do what the Spirit is convicting you to do. Don't wait for me just to check it off a list. James 4.17 says this, Remember, it's sin to know what you ought to do and then not do it. Now, the context for that statement in a whole series leading up to that is talking about prideful, self-centered attitude that causes quarrels among believers and other people who are really trying to make it all about themselves. And he's saying, no, don't live all about yourselves. Live as though you're God's chosen, and therefore you're willing to lay your lives down for your fellow friends, and you're going to treat them the way you would want to be treated. That's a very quick summation of that. But it, then he gets to that which can be applied to a lot of things. Remember, it is sin to know what you ought to do and then not do it. Let me, this is not in my notes. So, Mike, I'm going to camp out on this for just a little bit. Don't show the next slide yet. Um, my father-in-law smoked for a long time. He started when he was 11 years old, I think my wife told me. Because they used to do that out on the farm. You know, hey, son, you want a cig? And, and they would just do that. But he realized that that was not healthy for him, and they started learning more and more about that. The Cancer Society started putting out notifications and stuff, and he decided it was probably not a good idea for him to smoke any longer. But it was a really hard habit to break. Anybody that I've spoken with who has had that habit has said, it's nearly impossible. 
It's just so tough. But in their particular church culture, they would have a time every corporate gathered worship time together. They would have a time when people could come to the altar. And it wasn't like in Baptist churches where it was at the end of the service and people would come make a decision. It was just called the altar time, and it was in the middle of the service. And if you had a prayer request, you would go to the altar and kneel, and then you could just pray for that. And if you didn't want anybody else to pray with you, that was fine. But your presence there let other people know, I need to be praying for that person. So my father-in-law, during that altar time, walked forward, took a half pack of cigarettes out, laid it down on the altar, and he said, God, I can't do this. I can't do it on my own strength. Please take away this addiction from me. I don't want to smoke anymore. And he walked away miraculously. And I know this is not true for everybody. I've spoken with some who have said, I still have a craving, and it's been years, but I still, I'll smell that smoke, and I go, oh. But he didn't do that. He said God took it completely away, and he didn't smoke another cigarette after that day. Now, my point to that is this. Sometimes we're going to have people coming into our midst. We don't know what their hidden sins are. We don't know what's troubling them and what may have been troubling them for years. But God knows. They didn't kick my father-in-law out of the church because he smoked. They allowed him to come in. They were praying for him. It took years of wrestling with that specific thing before God finally removed it. And boy, did he ever remove it. I mean, completely. So here's the thing that I'm wrestling with. And I, part of what's motivating this, and I feel strongly about it, because I saw that movie, Jesus Revolution, yesterday. Several of you did. And I'm torn a little bit in my spirit because I see that we are in desperate need for another Jesus revolution in this country. But what happened back then may have to happen here in America because churches have become so cold to outsiders that the revolution took place mostly outside organized churches in the 70s. That became a convicting thing with me because I thought if somebody's desperate to be loved and accepted even though they're not perfected yet, Could we as a church body accept them into our midst not knowing what they're wrestling with? They don't know some of the stuff I'm wrestling with. I still wrestle. All of us as believers still wrestle with stuff. That's why it's a lifelong process of transformation. This sanctification is lifelong. Would we be not condemning but loving and gracious enough to welcome people in even though we feel like, yeah, they're really different than we're used to? trusting that God in his good time will reveal the right truth so that at the right time the spirit can move mightily on their heart and life and that's I couldn't sleep some last night because I was thinking about that movie and that revolution and the need for another revolution and I thought about the Asbury revival down in Kentucky and knowing that a lot of the things that were happening there were all about these people that were saying God I've tried to make this all about me and I need to repent from that There's a whole ton of repentance that was going along with that. And I think a lot of us older Christians need to do some repenting about the ways that we have caused other people to feel about God by the way we've treated them. Wouldn't it be something if our country saw a revolution like we saw in the 70s because believers really repented of our sins the way God wanted Israel to do and turn back to him so that people would see us as being winsome and gracious and loving and accepting and praying for them no matter what, even though they're going through some stuff. 
because we're all broken people. All right. That was my extra paragraph thrown in for just because I felt led to do so. Here's where the good news comes in. God forgives sin. He forgives all sin. Every bit of it. Some people might wait for a pastor to check some list off and say, oh, he mentioned that one, so okay, yeah, I guess I better repent from that one because he got to my sin. And Jesus says, no, 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 just listen to my spirit. You know, you know if it's sin or not. This is over 20 years ago, maybe 25 or so. A guy in a church that I served prior to coming here divorced his wife, hurt a lot of people. You know, I'm only hurting myself. No, it, it was painful for a lot of folks. And then... In a lengthy phone call, he was basically trying to blame me for not having preached hard enough about divorce and adultery. It was my fault. And I thought, okay, all right, let's examine this just logically for a moment. How many years have you been coming to church and listening to messages? How many Bible studies have you attended? Did you not hear the one about David and Bathsheba? I handled that one. I actually used the term adultery in that. And you didn't remember long enough to know that that's sin and that it's damaging and you're destroying a family and you're hurting all these other loved ones? So that was a tough one. It was tough to swallow. But it's a good illustration of what happens when all of us want to try to blame somebody else. Happened since the garden. Serpent made me do it. Oh, she made me do it. I mean, it's, it's a common human condition. We want to do that. It's like the guy who drives his truck over onto a frozen lake. But the sun comes out, and the frozen lake isn't frozen enough, and the truck sinks to the bottom of the lake. And then the guy tries to sue the owner of the pond because the owner of the pond didn't post enough signs that said, do not drive a truck onto this frozen lake. Come on. You know, sometimes you just have to say, come on. And sometimes when Jesus gets really exaggerated in his, teacher, in his teaching with these hyperboles, it's like he's trying to say, come on. Listen to the Spirit, folks. You'll know the Holy Spirit is good at convicting us of sin and guilt because that's one of his job descriptions. Listen to him. Now, I'm not just trying to take other people to task simply for that. I, too, have had to listen to the Spirit, and he convicts me. He convicts me all the time. But here's the point, and this is where I think chewing on this a little bit can help us see what Jesus meant. To break ourselves off from certain sins, especially if it's one that we really love, because there are certain sins that we might really love. We might have become very attached to that. In fact, we may have become very addicted to that, whatever that is. It may feel like the removal of a limb to us in order to do that. It is as though we have separated a limb in order to cut ourselves off from something that we know that God has convicted us about, and we finally get it, and we say, okay, I get it now, God. I've been in your word enough to see that you dislike this, and there's a good reason for it. You want to bless me like the children of Israel. Here's the way. Now walk in it. You've been walking in your own way, and how's that working for you? Obviously not too great because you're miserable. The world can't satisfy like we sing in the praise team. I can satisfy, and that's because I love you enough to be gracious enough to you to get you to lop that thing off metaphorically and walk away from that sin because then I can bless your socks off. Just walk in my way. And that's where grace comes in, and I love this. Here's where the grace of God enters the picture. Walking in the Spirit changes our attitude 
toward cutting ourselves off from sin that's revealed to us. When grace walks up, I read this from another pastor. When grace walks up and says, hey, let me introduce you to repentance. We're grateful to know repentance. In fact, we become the best of friends. If legalism comes in with the morality police and introduces you to repentance, then it feels like we're being called into the principal's office and we're about to get a ruler over the back of the hand. And God, through Christ, shows us grace on the cross to say, oh, I desire this so badly that I would literally give myself up for you because I want what's best for you. I'm not telling you to do this because I'm trying to make you endure pain. I endured the pain on your behalf. I'm doing this so that you can surgically remove that which is killing you and keeping you from being fully satisfied. Can you not see that? That is what grace reveals to us, and that's what we see with Jesus on the cross. So here's the question. Will we listen to the Spirit and hear what he's telling us that we need to metaphorically cut off in order to be the kind of grace agents to others in the world today. Let's pray. Father, this has been uh, a remarkable week in, in many ways. And it's no accident that you continue to arrange circumstances including the timing of a movie that got shut down and couldn't be released earlier because of a pandemic, all the things that come about. I'm trusting that your spirit knew exactly what I needed to hear for my own heart and for my own motive. And I pray that if there's any truth that's gotten through today, it's because of your spirit at work, not because of a checklist the pastor has given. And I pray that every single one of us would recognize the grace that introduces us to repentance and says, I love you so much, I would die in your place. Please, act as though you are dead to these things and get back into right relationship with me because I want to bless you. Here's the way, walk in it. And I pray all of us will take that to heart and apply some of this very specifically, even starting immediately even though it may be difficult in some of the things that we have to walk away from. I thank you that you're so patient and that you're so merciful and that you keep pouring out your grace constantly as we keep identifying that which the Spirit is revealing to us. Continue to reveal and may we continue to repent because we know that 1 John 1, 9 continues to be true, that if we'll confess that sin, you will be faithful and just to cleanse us of that sin. And we're so grateful that you do that. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.